You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to Page to Stage. A conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process. We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from. Such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals. And everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Peter Flynn. I am a freelance theater director. Uh, and also an educator at Montclair State University. Which Mary and I are both grads from, Mary in the grad program, right? And Mm -hmm. me from the acting undergrad. You kind of caught both of our attention. Well, actually, I remember seeing you speak, Peter, uh, two summers ago at the Broadway teaching group when I was an intern there over the summer, actually where I met Mary. But you recently caught our attention with the new production of your production of working at Montclair State University. So like over the past 10 months, we've shared with our listeners the processes of so many different artists and how COVID has affected their processes. But we haven't gotten a chance to speak with anybody directly connected to a college theater program during this time. And so having gone to school for acting, I can imagine how difficult this has been for college students in training programs. And of course, educators like yourself. So since you are a college professor and director, can you begin by telling our listeners what you've observed over the last year in theater education under these new circumstances? Sure. It's been absolutely fascinating from several angles. And I know a lot of times fascinating gets uh, is presumed to be a positive and um, engaging thing. But I really mean that I've been fascinated, um, sometimes compelled and sometimes distracted by the new mode of interaction, especially being in theater, which is a live form, not only between actors, but between audience and actors, that piece got removed uh, abruptly and constantly. And so I, as both an educator and a live performance artist, um, as a director, had to look for either a facsimile of that or an alternative to that. What is the kinetic, immediate relationship that compels actors to relate and express while also compelling an audience to engage? And what first fascinated me about that is how much I took that for granted before quarantine, before we went virtual and video how much I realized I relied on it um, uh, conditionally, that I just knew actors were going to kinetically find each other on stage, uh, verbally, visually, tangibly, musically, and that that connection would then build a larger connection between the immediate kinetic experience of the, of the, the audience, the visual, sonic a palpable experience of the audience. And with that gone, I then both as an educator and a director held myself obliged to figure out what we do instead. And it continues to be 10 to 11 months in the question, or, or as I say to actors, both in the rehearsal studio and the classroom, an inquiry, meaning For me, a a plain question is something where the answer is useful. How old is the character? 12, 
where do they live, the Midwest, right? As distinct from an inquiry where the question is more important. Why is she doing this? How could this be happening? I would much rather an actor ask that and then engage in the scene, right? So, so for me, the continual inquiry is what do we do to manifest connection impulsively and dramatically? And so a lot of it became, for me, trying to find what people have in their own environments that would generate that sort of impulse or kinetic activity, which then would engage an audience because they are living in a similar environment, meaning we're all living somewhere not where we're supposed to be, meaning the audience and the actor are both not in the theater together, but they are living similarly in the not theater space, whether that's home or an office or a dormitory, right? That's where I had to get to. And I got there by using what I would call anthropological skills. I I will sometimes say to my students, Actors at best are anthropologists. We are studying the species. We are studying the species of being human. Why do we do things? How do we do things? How often do we do things? Right? And so I really had to take that to heart for myself to say, how are we living right now? What is causing us to get up? What is causing us consternation or frustration or abandonment or solitude? Right? And then finding the things in our environments that are similar. So we could engage with them as actors and identify them as audience. So to keep it specifically to working, uh, to give a little context, before quarantine, we were going to do another musical entirely in the fall. When we thought we were going to do a traditional musical, we were doing something else. And very quickly, we changed horses. And I really credit uh, the head of the musical theater program at, at Montclair State, Clay James, with the idea he said, what about something like working? And I had been in working before, I had produced it before, um, and I immediately, you know, it spoke to me instinctively, A, because I've known it ever since the American Playhouse version uh, back in the 80s, um, where I saw it originally, and I, I became that cult, uh, part of that cult appreciation you know, club of the musical. I just think it's magnificent. And I started looking at it and I realized, right, so there are no moments of intimacy, 70 to 80% of it is monologue uh, in its form. So it's individual people. And it is something we're all relating to universally, not only being of work, being in labor uh, or at labor, but also right now, how are we all working, right? So it was, it was a win-win, but the first win was already in the piece, right? Like it's all the elements that I had just described. The second win was something that I came upon, which was, well, this if we really want to do justice to this piece, we find how it relates to how we're working right now, masked, socially distanced, from home, any combination of those. Very uh, fortunately and gratefully, I am friends with Stephen Schwartz, who is the original director and conceiver and uh, the composer of some of the most beautiful music in the score. And so I wrote him and I said, so what do you think of this idea? You know, what I'd like to do is um, interview some people who are anywhere from frontline first responders to people who have been impacted personally, 
um, you know, uh, uh, residentially by the quarantine or business-wise who's been uh, impacted and um, very generously and immediately and with, with great enthusiasm and compassion, Stephen said, absolutely, this is what you do. And in fact, he said, I love when this piece gets unearthed for its relevancy to current cultural experience. And um, the uh, what I should have said is the idea came because um, throughout last semester, uh, two semesters ago, throughout spring semester, I knew some of my students had first responders, um, frontline people in their family, as well as some people whose families had been impacted because jobs had been either furloughed or lost because of it. So I actually had tangible, immediate access to update the working script experience. And so once Stephen said yes, I then wrote an email to the entire musical theater student body. And I said, so this is what we're doing with this play. Um, This was even before we auditioned for it. If any of you or your family are interested in being interviewed so that we could turn those into monologues and characters, please be in touch. And very luckily, we we got responses from, I think, five or six different people. And yeah, it was really, I, you know, I was really moved by people wanting to be involved that way. And so um, my associate director, Chanel Johnson, who just graduated, um, and I had a conversation and I really said to her, this needs to be, I need to direct a show, but I need somebody to commandeer this and make curate it. And um, after a lot of extensive conversation, Chanel came up with a list of questions. Um, then once we were cast, Chanel and I met with we, you know, we cast five actors, um, sort of blind, saying you are absolutely the feel and the vibe and the culture of our show, but we don't have your monologue yet. That's to come. And so we then met with them and said, we're going to have these interviews. Here are the times. Are you available? So then when we had the interviews, Chanel would meet with the people, with the actor who's about to become that character listening. And once Chanel had finished the the first interview, she would then say, hey, actor, do you have any other questions? And there'd be a whole second part of the interview that the actor would then be ignited by what she or he had heard and say, yes, I do have a question about that. And so from there, Chanel and the actor would then curate a monologue, send it to me. We'd go back and forth with some edits. And um, we renamed everybody um, so that they were, you know, named uh, fictionally or uh, and uh, in the show and then we rehearsed them as actual monologues and put them and then shot them um as part of our our show so that was that was one half of how we put the show on was was creating these new bonafide characters from the 2020 uh experience and where in 2020 like where in the pandemic did this happen was this earlier on was this you know we gave some time you know let the kind of reality hit great question mary yeah no it was so you know so the 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 pandemic hit we all went into quarantine in spring semester and that really was i knew i was going to be directing the traditional musical in the fall that just sort of went on pause like we didn't even deal with that it was all about switching over to how are we going to teach so the spring semester was all remote right and so the first thing i had to do was what we were talking about earlier is what can i use in my student actors environment to make what they are doing um, authentic impulsive essential and relevant to what we were doing 
right? So uh, in some places I had to choose, well, in, in all my classes, I switched texts because um, in one of my classes, I was doing large group scenes from American plays. And in the other class, I was doing um, smaller, but still multi-character uh, scenes from Shakespeare. And not knowing how to use Zoom yet and not knowing accounting for sound interference, I switched both of those texts to other Shakespeare texts and another American um, classic play that could be uh, done in monologue form. But to make it performative, I then suggested to each class, why don't we do a final suite, if you will, of these monologues that we will shoot from your own environment. And then myself and a video editor will edit together and we'll do sort of a, a montage, if you will, a musical a monologue um, medley of each of these classes' work so that there was an end product, right? Because that's what we do in, in performance. We ultimately want to share it with an audience. So it's sure it's about performing because we like to perform, but it's also that essential need to, I have made something, do you want it? What do you think of it? Right. So instead of just sort of running out of steam at the end of the semester, I said to each of them, let's let's work on these monologues and then we're going to sew them together as your final offering. And then you'll also each have a time capsule from now on to say, this is what we created at the end of the spring uh, spring semester of 2019 when this all first happened. I'm not too familiar with the musical working. I listened to a bunch of the one of the more recent recordings of it in prep for this episode. But I'm wondering, how does your production alter the text and the circumstances within the script if you guys are contributing additional pieces sure. of material? So I would say about 85% of the show is what it is. Um, and again, that came not just because I wanted to keep the integrity of the show, but because I've been such an admirer of that show for so long. Um, so, it, you know, I started with wanting to illuminate the show as is because of its merit. What we did was create those five monologues that I just described. And to make room for them, I asked Stephen, could we lose a few monologues that either were not age appropriate for the students or seemed a little um, outdated because of when they were originally written. And again, he very constructively and very generously said, sure, let me know what they are and, and where you're putting the other ones. And so we did. Musically, the show is basically what it is. Um, but, but what we did to make it our version was to add those five monologues that we called from the interviews. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. Just doing some research on working in prep for this, I noticed that, you know, there's been so many revisions and people doing what you're doing, I'm assuming, since it first premiered in 1977. Yep. The show was not considered a hit only running like 24 performances and 12 previews on Broadway. So what do you think it is about this musical that draws folks like yourself back to it from time to time? Well, first of all, I think it's, I, I think each piece is very well written. I think there's a cohesiveness that is hard to um, create for it every time because it is a, a lot of people telling about their work experience. And so um, I know as a, as a director, as a creative, one of my objectives is to avoid the pedantry of it, to avoid that. And then this happened. And then here's another person, right? So I think the holistic part of it is the challenge. The individual pieces are little gems. 
And because you had great writers working on them, you had Stephen Schwartz and Craig Cornelia and James Taylor and Mickey Grant, right? All writing really beautiful pieces of a, of a resource, Studs Terkel, uh, his original book being so good as well, that he really asked essential unexpected questions of people that don't usually get asked those questions, right? So, so the, and again, that's a, that's a mutually beneficial thing. You have the common woman or the common man to which everyone can relate being asked questions about their job that are not about their job, that are about them and their job. And so now you've got source material that is remarkably personal in an unexpected way, which of course becomes really good fodder for drama and for music. So then you get song titles like everyone should have something to point to, right? Or all I am is just a housewife, nothing special, nothing great, right? So I think what resonates for those of us who really love this musical is the craftsmanship is solid. You can't nick it. And it's, like I said, they're all individual jewels. Um, And then the second thing that I think has people coming back to it is that, like I said, that human condition element of it. This is, if not ourselves, our parents, our siblings, our coworkers, our best friends, what we strive for. And it's an American musical. And what I mean by that is, of course, being in the workforce is a global experience. But Studs Terkel's original book, as well as the musical, focuses on the American dream. If I work to a certain place, then life gets better. You know, the the one um, number that the cleaning women sing um, is all about someday I won't have to do this all day long. And not only will I not have to do it all day long, the daughter I'm raising right now won't do it ever. Right? So there's an aspirational quality that I think is embedded in the DNA of our American culture. And I think that's what's so um, engaging, inspiring, and moving about the show. I think that's also a universal theme even just for what's currently happening too. I mean, there's so much of like, you know, if, if I if I work hard right now, you know, it'll get better in the future. And, you know, what you just said about like my my kids won't, you know, the kids that I'm raising won't, hopefully, you know, we hope that they won't be dealing with COVID in the future, but that's kind of that that thought. So I'm, I'm actually curious because from what I've seen, because I've also with, with Broadway teaching groups specifically have seen many, many of your workshops with the teachers over the last maybe five years now, including the most recent virtual one that, that you've done with where you brought students on. And it feels like a lot of your teachings, and I'm assuming a lot of your direction is very physical. I, I have a, a memory of, of one of the summers where you were with Bonnie Milligan and you had her running around the studio at Open Jar with Into the Woods. And so I'm curious how that f- the physicality translated virtually for you and how were you working with that with with these actors for working? Sure. Well, you know, uh, to, to make it as short as possible, um, I'm a big believer as as a director and as well as a I guess I'd say a theatrical investigator. I'm a big believer in the body speaks, the mind doesn't. Right? If you boil it down, any idea that gets expressed is because of a physical need or a physical discovery. 
And um, if any of my students listen to this podcast, they will recognize that the, the example I always give is, you know, I've yet to be in a room where somebody puts their hand on a hot stove and goes, oh, something's wrong, right? Like the body speaks because something happened. We put our hand on that stove and all of a sudden, not only do we pull our hand away, our mouth and our words are working faster than our mind. Ooh, that hurt. That's hot. Somebody help me. I need, is there any ice? Is there a bed? Wow. I, right. That's not our mind talking. That's our body talking. So anything ultimately, I believe, worth saying comes from a physical experience. And if we're doing our jobs right as theater artists, we are representing physical experience, physical relatedness, physical discovery that then gives way to really well-constructed plays, right? So whether we are in a virtual world or in a, a viscerally connected world like theater, what we are offering as artists and what audiences are sitting up for is that connection of physical discovery and vitality and realization and, 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 and connection. So going back to what I was saying before, is my big inquiry is how do I find that as both a director and an educator, I'm looking for what is stimulating the body's need to express itself in this new space, right? So I'm, I'm looking for the actor's relationship with the environment. I'm looking for the actor's relationship to their sense of event, right? It's not always, you know, the body's relationship to the environment around them. It's also the body's experience of the event that's going on. I'm at home for three months. I'm expecting a call. I'm on this podcast, right? And so how do I illuminate the physical experience for actors such that they then find impulsive, dynamic, genuine ways to use text. I'm wondering if there's anything about this process uh, as you're working on it. And, and just just so to clarify, how how far are you guys? You guys are finished recording. The finished product is ready and it's just waiting to be released? No, actually. So what's interesting is, um, to bring you right up to date, we were beginning our final week of shooting, which was to be the three biggest numbers in the show because they were going to be a live capture of three company numbers in our largest space at, at Montclair, which is Memorial Auditorium, which kept everything safe distanced and masked. And um, we had to stop production because one of our company tested positive. And so we were four days away from finishing and couldn't. But the good news is we have figured out a way to catch those days again at the beginning of the next semester. So um, with fingers crossed and a lot of um, faith and goodwill on the part of the production department at, at uh, Theater and Dance, we're going to be finishing that recording I think the second week we're back in spring semester, and then we'll go into editing and hopefully have something by the end of the semester. So, um, so you'll see it then. So as a director at a college, you're balancing your own artistic process and integrity, but you're also responsible for giving your students a creative environment to explore and develop their craft at such an integral part of their training. How do you navigate that balance and how does that affect your process as a director? Sure. Well, hopefully that balance is really more synthesis than it is balancing, meaning what my artistic process is, is hopefully one that is kindred to the one that my student actors are developing for themselves and want to participate in as actors. So 
yes, I have a vision for uh, production, whether it's professional or educational, but that vision is only as good as the collaboration that's going to build it with me, right? So I can honestly say flat out, even in a professional setting, I know where we're going, but I count on my creative team, my designers, as well as my acting company to find the way there with me. And, you know, yes, that is, I say that generously, but I also say that essentially, I say that necessarily. Um, I need to hear better, bigger ideas than the ones I have because that's how the show is going to be, ironically, what I envision, right? So I can sort of see where we're going and I know what I hear and hope this looks like, but I don't know how to get there by myself. So my artistic process always essentially asks questions. So my artistic process, whether it's educational or professional, is always going to look over there and say, well, what's this experience for you? And what's it like on the inside? You're playing this character. I'm not. Or, you know, you're better, you're more versed in fabric or structure than I am. What's this idea that I'm seeing that you're going to see a lot clearer or feel a lot more empathically and impulsively from the inside? So the balance I'm striking is for me perpetually what I imagine and how we get there rather than what I imagine and, oh, it's not what I saw. I, you know, I, I can honestly say I think I have maybe two experiences in my entire uh, professional experience where I, go, I, I ended up going, oh, this isn't what I thought it was at all, and it's, and it's, it's less than or aberrant too. The majority of times are always, oh, we're there, or oh, we're there, and wow, deeper, richer, higher, more uh, complex than I expected. Um, so it's, it's, it's a constant, I guess the word balance would be between me keeping us all focused on where we're going while also listening to how we want to get there. And that's, that, that's how I would answer that question is the balance isn't between, well, I have this one thing, but I have to deliver this other experience for student actors. I actually think that's counter. I think that's, I think, I think that's counterintuitive. My balance is here's where I know we're going but I'm also going to balance on how we're getting there. So I will keep us focused on the, on the destination, but the balance is me then asking a lot of questions and, and, and um, facilitating um, growth and development to get us there. And that's both professional and educational. That's the balance. It's not between either or, it's between here and where we are. There seems to be a theme of like questions. I mean, questions that you're asking the actors, the actors are asking you, but also then the questions that you were asking and creating to flesh out these new characters within working. And so I'm I'm curious if if you've used the the interviewing portion of creating these stories. If have you used that tool or that model before with other shows outside of working? Have you found that that really helps? like your pre-production, like before you get in the room with the actors, like have you found that that helps or hinders your process at all? 
Sure. I don't think I've ever, you know, I don't think I've ever used the first person, hey, we should interview these people to see what they say um, and turn them into characters before because the characters have always been established. But have I in my pre-production researched other people that are kindred to the characters in the play I'm directing? You bet. Have I interviewed people who are either living lives similar to the characters that are in the play I'm about to direct? Absolutely. Do I encourage the actors to do that themselves, whether it's family members or people in their uh, personal lives or outside, you know, complete strangers that are open to being interviewed? Absolutely. Right. Again, you know, we're anthropologists. We are, we are studying human behavior to reflect it and illuminate it and heighten it so that there is always the question of how did this happen? Why is this occurring? What would make someone choose this so that there is fundamental empathy? And I don't mean compassion. I mean, how do I wrap my mind and, and my own experience around a character's choices? Well, you do that by asking questions. Why, why would they? How would they? Right? And so, yes, to answer your question, Mary, the, the, I, I've not done direct interviews to create character, but I do conduct interviews all the time to um, refine character and to develop character. Absolutely. And do I ask my actors to do that too? Sure. Absolutely. What were some of the technical challenges? Because we're, we're all having technical difficulties over the past year. Did you guys have any challenges or either personally or as a production that you want to share about this process? Oh, sure. I mean, lots of them. And they're all as relatable and, you know, in, in their own frustration and consternation as I think the, the experiences of working are. Um, you know, in person, there's the frustration of how close can we get to each other? How far away do we have to stay? We are always masked, right? Like that was something that we had to really embrace is when we, you know, to fully disclose, when we first started pre-production on working, there were conversations all around of, okay, so in rehearsal, everybody will be masked, but when it's time to run a number or um, shoot a number, we'll have those that are essentially in the number take their masks off, do the number, and then put masks back on while we are all socially distanced. Well, very early on in rehearsal, we could feel as a company, not just me as a director, these masks aren't coming off. No one wants to take masks off in this room. So then the choreographer and the musical director, um, Holly Wright, our choreographer, and Sarah England, our musical director, and the company had to figure out, well, then how do we do this number? How do we tell this story with everybody staying in masks? And again, I looked at the resource material and went, well, it's what everybody's doing at work right now. How do we balance? And here's really, Brian, where I did have to balance. How do we balance the clarity and engagement of the story being told with the necessity of losing some sound, some articulation, and visually the lower half of everyone's face, right? Um, that continues to be a challenge, right? Uh, both in class and in rehearsal and in shooting the show, right? That, that, that is just the standard is we do not take masks off, period. You know, so, so that was a big thing in person is a, Hey, we can't stand that close and the masks are staying on. And so we very early, you know, so early in our pre-production, we were clear, we were going to be pre-recording all of the music and the singing 
that people, whether we were on a location, and I'll get to that in a minute, or in the live capture in the Memorial Auditorium, we were going to pre-record music and lyric, and people would be singing to that. As we did that in rehearsal, we realized, oh, we're going to do that for all the speaking as well. Because trying to capture the speaking impulsively or spontaneously, we just aren't getting it through the mask. So now we're going to go back into the studio, which studio I mean everybody's own dorm room or bedroom or home, record it there, send the file to our sound designer, and um, have him boil it down and add it to the sound file. So everything is literally pre-recorded, except for, to segue, the things we did on Zoom over line, or or we rehearsed on Zoom, but then we recorded um, individual videos for us. So, So the frustrations on video were, how do we rehearse a musical? And again, very early on, our musical director, Sarah England, found another audio platform that could work in conjunction with Zoom that within a few milliseconds synced up audio. If anybody's going to find that, it's Sarah Brett England. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And she did and used it with a plum and always knew where everybody was supposed to be. And, you know, and what was fascinating was we would be doing a group number, whether it was four people or all 18 people, and she could say things like, oh, Brian, you're 20 milliseconds behind. Mary, you're only 12 seconds behind, so your connection's pretty good. Peter, you're about 35 seconds behind, so we're definitely going to hear a delay with you. But Joe, you're only five seconds, five milliseconds behind, so that's great. You know, you're really close. And um, not only was it fascinating to hear her say that, but it helped all of us lean in to go, okay, so we have to cut each other some slack and know that I'm going to get the best I possibly can. But what it made it possible to do was rehearse music on Zoom because we would mute ourselves on Zoom. We would turn up the, the sound on the platform that Sarah was using and to, into which we all punched in. And, um, and then we would rehearse. And it was fascinating that we could do that. And then to record it, we would send that platform to everyone at home. They would press play on their own video and then we would marry those two things in our edit. So the other great benefit we had was working with the School of Communication and uh, Broadcast Media Operations. Um, very early on, um, my counterpart at the School of Communication, Stuart McClellan, um, created coursework around our show so that he had a different shoot crew for every single number or scene in the show um, that it became their project to do. And that was great. Because now we had investment from the capture side of the musical as much as the production side and the rehearsal side of the, of the production. And so we had somebody guiding us on that side as well, which was great. I'm so fascinated by that technology you just mentioned. Like, so, peop- so the actors were able to hear each other? Yes. That's incredible. And, and Sarah playing. Wow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> technology i mean i'm telling you right and it's um well and it's also you know there's also the um if you've been following seth rudetsky not only has he been doing stars in the house he's been doing these concerts and he has found something that you know again here we are in the wild west when the internet is working when people's power doesn't go out syncs up his live accompaniment with someone singing in their own house but you know having um I did a, a spinoff of Stars in the House for them called Plays in the House, where we did play readings all summer long to raise money for the Actors Fund and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, during those times, I, you know, I'd say to Seth and James, his husband, 
you know, hey, how are the concerts going? And they say, oh my God, we, it almost didn't happen tonight. You know, so-and-so's power wasn't working because they live out in the country or our, our internet went out. And so five minutes before we didn't have any hookup, you know, so it really is that like, even when you find the platform that works, you got to make sure that there's power, right? Which is just crazy in this 21st century that we all are like, hey, are your lights on? Good. We can do our concert, you know? It's amazing. Yes. Yes, I totally feel that. I'm curious if you if there is a specific stage or period of your directing process that you enjoy the most. Yeah, the figuring it out stage, which you know, when I think about it, whether we are in this virtual world or in a regular world, it's always my favorite place. It's the breaking ground. It's the, okay, we've done the read through, we've done the read sing through. Everybody is literally on the same page, but also has a a communal understanding of the story we're trying to tell. People have asked really good questions. People have had some really terrific discoveries. And now we all want to get on our feet and figure out how that happens. So whether that was figuring that out virtually, because um, I would say our show is broken into thirds, meaning a third of the show is the live capture company numbers that I described. Another third is where we went on location because some of, you know, some of these jobs happen outdoors. There's a mason working on stonework, so we went to the amphitheater to shoot that. Um, there's an iron worker. We went on to a construction zone where there are a bunch of heavy um, construction equipment. We shot that there. The Red Hawk Diner was you know, closed, and so they very generously said, sure, come in with a smaller group and, and shoot the, the waitress scenes masked and socially distanced, right? So we did some, we did some on location shooting. And then the last third were songs and scenes we shot quote unquote on zoom because in this new version, that's where we would be interviewing these people, right? If we treat working as a musical documentary, then we wouldn't go to people's office buildings. We would zoom them. We would Zoom the receptionist or the housewife that I mentioned earlier. We're not going to go to the housewife's home right now. Um, that would be jeopardizing their health and ours. So we Zoomed, quote unquote, just a housewife with six other housewives, right? So, so in each place, we had to figure out how we were going to do that. How are we going to create the company number with masks and social distance? How are we going to create the on-location experience um, outside? How are we going to create the Zoom experience where the housewife is talking to the interviewer from her home? And what does her home look like? And is that a virtual world that we're sending a virtual background to the actor? Or is it something they can do in their, their dorm room or their bedroom, right? So my favorite part was the, okay, we all know the story we're telling. We all know the questions we're asking around this particular character and this particular monologue or song. Now, how do we want to manifest it physically? How do we want to manifest it visually? And so at that point, I just become a facilitator of good work and good questions, right? That's where I really am asking more questions than saying you go there. It really is just in engaging the actors and the musical director and the choreographer in the, all right, so what is this space like? You know, where are we living? How are we moving in it? How are we capturing that? Right. So I think that's my favorite part is, is sort of the breaking ground on the, on the physical environmental experience. Do you think this is the future of theater like this, whether it's like this hybrid model 
of like filming, but it's still theater. Like I have been finding myself asking myself this question over the last, I would say, probably like six months now. And I'm curious as to your thoughts since you've actually been working on a production that that is that does appear to be this like hybrid model since you're filming on location and in a studio on Zoom, but it's theater, right? So I'm curious of your thoughts on that. I'd say yes and yes, meaning I think I, I would never, ever want this to happen again. I think what we're going to get out of it are a couple of things. One is in our civilian population, as much as in our artist population, there's going to be this primal need to gather again, right? We haven't gathered as families. We haven't gathered as communities. And we certainly haven't gathered to watch something larger than ourselves, right? So there's theater around us all the time. The ball dropping New Year's Eve was weird because the theatrical element of all of us gathering in a big space to watch this event happen couldn't occur. So when we are all healthy and able to gather again, there's going to be this primal need to come out and be together and watch something larger than ourselves take place, right? So that's the first thing that's going to happen. But the second thing I'd say is what we're getting out of this time is access. We have access now to narrative and shared experience globally, instantly, constantly. And that is something that, because we took for granted, happened sometimes and casually. Well, now we are innovating ways to share that, um, if not visceral experience, collective experience anywhere, anytime. And that is stimulating, right? So while I was directing the Plays in the House series, I have students that um, every uh, every other year, my wife, uh, who's a, a professional actor, Andrea Burns and I, go to New Zealand and we teach for three weeks in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, in musical theater program that's just really dynamic and 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 offering musical theater to young actors that normally wouldn't have that access. Well, I mentioned them because during the Plays in the House series, all of a sudden they were seeing my work and the actors with whom I was working instantaneously and able to communicate with me about what they were experiencing. So now the every other year experience became any time they wanted to engage with me because they were seeing the work I was doing and how we were doing it together, right? So there is an access to live theater that I hope we creatively, conscientiously, responsibly build as a hybrid when we get back into live theater. I don't know why we wouldn't keep that access. Yeah. So then looking forward on a personal level in your process, is there anything about working on this production of working that you would take back to a normal production? quote unquote, normal production when live theater returns? Yeah, there is. I, I, I don't think I can give you specifics like, hey, I found this trick online that's just great. But I think what I can tell you, Brian, is I will be asking, how do we make this more accessible? And also, how does video make this, ex- this visceral experience more potent? Right? And we were starting to do that anyway. There were a couple of really breathtaking moments that I was seeing um, in regional theater as well as in commercial theater, where people were finding video and sonic experiences that were making the acting experience more impulsive 
and more dynamic, and therefore the shared experience between actor and audience more kinetic and more profound. So what those are, I will know the more we do this, but I think those are the two things I'd say is how do we make this more dynamic because of the holistic um, combination of video and sonic and, and actor experience come together? But also, I know I'll be leaning into, well, now that we've created this, how do we make it more accessible? Because I think there's something for, I think there's a win-win there. I think not only is it about being making it more accessible for the audience, I think it's making it more accessible for the shared relationship between actor and audience. And so the actor is going to have a more profound experience knowing that their audience is larger than what is right in front of them. Mary, do you think it's time to move on to our lightning round before we finish up? Yeah, let's do it. Our first question is, what is one thing in the theater industry that confuses you? Standing in line to get into a theater for which you have a specific ticket. That's <laughs> we have not heard that before, that I answer, that. but it is so true. We all know, we all are going to the space we paid for. And so when I was a kid, you know, I very luckily, fortunately grew up in the tri-state area. Um, and so when I would go to a show as a kid, you just sort of stood outside and said hello. And all of a sudden the doors open and we all very politely with great composure found our way into the theater and found our seat and somewhere that stopped and we all had to line up to go to a place we all knew we were going some people are going to use the restroom some people are going to get a drink some people are going to wait outside to meet their friends or have that last smoke some people are going to go right inside and read the playbill cover to cover we all have various things we want to do before that third event starts so why do we have to line up for it what are three adjectives that describe your ideal working environment? Collaborative, audacious, unexpected. What is one job in the theater industry that you would trade jobs with for one week? Oh, a writer. What's a show that you've already directed that you would like to direct again, whether it be um, something that you, uh, you know, there was, maybe there's an opportunity that you think you might have missed reflecting back or you think it's just relevant again? I have two. Uh, there was a, I was an artistic director of regional theater in Ithaca, New York for a while, the Hangar Theater, which is still a, a beautiful and very compelling place to work. And I had commissioned a new play there that wasn't ready in the time that was allotted. And I owe that time to that writer I, I carry that with me right now as well. And so I would like to re-examine re that play. The other one is Into the Woods. I think um, I left with as many beautiful, complex, hard questions as a person, as a male, as a father, as a theater artist that I want to ask more in that environment. Um, what is one hobby that you have outside of the theater industry? Running. And our final question, which we have been saying is, is more of a difficult question to answer, uh, is what is the last great piece of theater that you saw? It would have to be the production of 12 Angry Men at Ford's Theater. It was uh, progressively relevant, urgent, and engaging. It really, I, I couldn't believe how I could, uh, that I was being pulled in and made uncomfortable and still engaged 
through the entire piece. And it just spoke to the writing, the direction, the casting. It was just a profoundly compelling piece of theater. Being uncomfortable, I mean, that can really sometimes separate the enjoyment. Yeah. And that's too. what I mean. That's what, so fascinating. Exactly, exactly, Mary. And that's what that's that's really I have such profound respect for the entire creative team on that, as well as the company, because I really was very aware of like, I am so uneasy right now and I must stay with this. <laughs> I, I love those experience. I, I've had many of those recently with like films that I've watched, and and those are some of the most compelling ones because you ask yourself so many questions that I hopefully was intended from the whoever is producing or directing and acting right. all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. It was really fascinating, and I can't wait to see your production of Working. Um, now, how can our listeners find you? Uh, do you? I don't know if you have any social media that you want to plug or any upcoming projects. Uh, you know, I am one of the few people um, not on social media, um, <laughs> but uh, I am in the midst of directing um, a production of Teresa Rebeck's Bad Dates for the George Street Playhouse, which is putting their entire season um, online. So I am directing it, but we are filming it as well. And it should be out uh, mid to late February. Um, and, uh, I can share with you all to labor of love. I am directing and my wife, Andrea Burns is playing the one role in the show. So we are getting to oh, wow. work together, which also creates its own bubble. Um, but we met working together. So it's always a, a pleasure getting back to the rehearsal room with each other. So, uh, that's what I'm working on right now, as well as finishing working, which like I said, will hopefully be out there, uh, in the spring. So look for that as well. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much thank for coming you. on the show. I equally, I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you both. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.